Thanks for joining us for this episode of Everything Just Changed. Before we get into this episode, I just want to let you know that we're doing something a little different this time. In light of the turmoil in our nation right now, Brad and I sat down earlier this week with Brandon Washington to get his insight as a Christian and a pastor on the racial tensions that we are all experiencing. And after our conversation, we realized that it was so relevant to what we're experiencing right now that we didn't want to wait our normal week or two turnaround time to release it. And so we're releasing this episode today in its unedited form. We haven't taken out the ums, the awkward pauses, the uh, times when we didn't know exactly what we were saying. We haven't cleaned it up at all. So there may be some rough moments, but we wanted to get this to you as quickly as possible because we believe that Brandon's voice and insight is incredibly important for us to hear right now. So with that said, here's the episode. Welcome to Everything Just Changed. This is a new podcast where we are asking the question, what does it look like to faithfully navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world? I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here, as always, with my friend Brad Edwards. We're both pastors and church planters uh, in the Western U.S., and we launched this podcast because as the COVID-19 crisis set in, what, 10, 12 weeks ago, we saw fear and a scarcity mindset beginning to take hold of our culture. And wow, has that even been exacerbated just in the last two or three weeks as uh, racial tensions, racial violence is again coming to the forefront of our national consciousness. And, uh, and so Brad and I have been exploring those themes. One of the key themes we've been exploring in this podcast, and I think one of the currents underlining all that's going on in our culture is just the power of secularism, uh, worldview of secularism, the attempt to get progress without presence, to use power without purpose, and to strive for life without limits. And yet it's all crashing down around us. And so uh, secularism is not just pulling, pulling our culture apart, it's also infecting the Christian church as well. So Brad, uh, we are going to have a, a, an interesting conversation, I think, today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are... We've got a guest here. His name is Brandon Washington. Brandon and I go way back uh, to, what, 2013, 2012, when we were first starting to hang out. Um, that sounds good. Yeah, some uh, connected through Acts 29 and also Fellowship Associates um, out of Little Rock, Arkansas. We both are alumni of a, a church planting residency program that is just phenomenal. And Brandon is the the founding pastor and pastor of Preaching and Visioning at Embassy Church in Denver. He's the husband to Cherie, and um, Cherie is not his wife. Uh, he is her husband. Uh, and knowing Cherie, that is an important distinction and, and accurate. Uh, and and Brandon is father of two uh, amazing kids. He's got an MA in theology and an MA in apologetics and ethics from Denver Seminary. He is the professor of preaching and systematic theology at Denver Seminary Urban in- Initiative and is the contributing author on an uh, upcoming book with, with Eric Mason uh, on a, a chapter on philosophy and worldview. He's also working on a, a, another book in addition to that on his, uh, historical theology, looking at the rift between the black and the white evangelical church and how we got here today and wow, is that ever going to come up. Um, Brandon, we we reached out to you what feels like an eternity ago now, but it was really only about three or four weeks ago. Uh, it was it was prompted by a Facebook post you had made in April, where uh, you made the comment that as a as a black man 
um, you had this moment, and I'm going to quote you directly. You said, for a moment, I pondered how much my life may be in jeopardy if I walk into a public place while masked. Mm -hmm. If that thought is entirely foreign to you, then we grew up in different worlds. And in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of these conversations that Bryce and I are having, we are acutely aware that we are coming from, both of us, incredibly white uh, incredibly wealthy and privileged cultural context. Uh, we are ourselves Affl affluent. Yes, affluent. I would. I think there's a huge difference between affluence and wealth, but that's another. <laughs> no, it is, and, and and it's it's a mindset uh, as as and not just a quantitative yeah. state, right? So in the midst of that, we had reached out to you to try and schedule this, and since then we've had a couple of, like scheduling conflicts, and before we were able to get something else on the calendar. We've had a string of, of very public, uh, tragic, unjust deaths in starting with Ahmaud Arbery, uh, yeah. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and now, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, David um, McAtee uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, who was killed during a peaceful protest where officers fired into the crowds. And it, it, is, a, it is a stunningly tragic and lamentable season that we're in the midst of. And it just feels like, okay, here we go again. This is, this is Ferguson 2.0. And I, I, maybe, maybe, you, maybe Brandon, you don't agree with this, but it just feels like that Facebook post that prompted all this feels unbelievably trite uh, in the midst of how things have escalated since then. And so I just want to start by asking Brandon, man, how, how the hell are you doing? I can't even imagine like, well, how, like how seriously, like how are you, man? And how, what is it like, uh, to, to just be bearing up underneath all of this. So here's the difference between today and I think I posted that face, that, that mask comment about maybe about four weeks or five weeks. This was probably longer than that because we, we were relatively early in the process. And that was the first time I was ever going to find myself leaving my house in the midst of the pandemic. And uh, my wife ordered mask. And she was very deliberate because uh, at the time, the language that was being used online and in certain newscasts, how you can make your mask at home, how you can how you can create a homemade mask. Mm -hmm. And my wife, who is the ever vigilant one regarding being attentive to how complicated it can be as a as a large black male and, and the perceptions regarding me, she said, "You cannot leave here wearing a homemade." So mm -hmm. she ordered the you know that obvious hospital mask for everyone in the household. And so everyone knows precisely what it is. But I think that what she said, um, it didn't create this thought, but it 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 ignited, it reignited it. Um, and th that I have to be very careful with how I approach the world while wearing a mask. In fact, uh, one of the things that came up was I have a, I have a, a eye disorder. I have something called idiopathic retinopathy. Idiopathic simply means they don't know what caused it, but there's damage to my retinas. So I have to wear special glasses that are very dark to block out both fluorescent and sunlight. And my wife said, there's no way in the world I'm allowing you to leave the house while wearing sunglasses and a mask that obscures the lower half of your face. That's just not happening. And we end up having a conversation about how someone will, will act on it and then after acting on it, after I've experienced the, either the public humiliation of being handcuffed and having to prove that I'm innocent, or worst case scenario, I've been killed, then they'll discover, oh, he's the husband, 
father of two, pastor in the community. Mm. You know, the, graduate degrees mean nothing when you walk into a store wearing um, prescription sunglasses and a mask. None of that. Get, no one knows your CV when you walk into a public. Mm. So she was very clear on how that cannot happen. And it was this. It was this. Again, it was not new. It was a reminder of how different the the worlds are in which we live. And then fast forward a few weeks, and then you find out about. Amont Arbery being shot while running down the street. Yeah. And then fast forward a few more weeks and you find out about a woman sleeping in her bed at one o'clock in the morning, doing precisely what you're supposed to do mm. at one o'clock in the morning. And and in fact, I'm from Texas. So when someone invades your home unannounced, he did precisely what you're supposed to do, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, and my, my observation was not merely that she died, but that he was arrested. Mm. That caught my attention. Mm. And the other, and then you, and then you go forward even more, and you find out what happens with, uh, with George Floyd. And, um, and I, and I realize how legitimate the concern about the mass, how much, how legitimate that was, yeah. how legitimate that was, uh, because I did not, I did not really take the thing I noticed with with Amount Arbery was. I want the first thing I want to know was what was he wearing? Did he look like someone who would be out for a job? And then you see what he's wearing, and you and he's not wearing jeans and Timberland boots. He looks like a jogger. Yeah. What did he have on him? He had nothing on him, so we know he didn't steal anything. And the men who shot him were not arrested. I'm not talking about incarcerated. I'm not talking about tried yet. Everyone talks about the future. I'm talking about the present. If I were to defend myself, if I were to shoot a man who's attacking me, at the very least, I'm going to see the inside of a courtroom and have to defend the action that I took. Those two men were not even questioned in in a in a uh, in a careful in a careful setting. They not they were not taken to the police station and careful. They were released that day. They didn't even go into that place of questioning. It's a foregone conclusion. He was wrong. You were not. And the question I think everyone has to ask themselves is, why would they immediately assumed innocent? And he was immediately assumed guilty. I want, I want to stop here because I'm talking about too much. But <laughs> when they contacted his mother, when they contacted Ahmad Arbery's mother, the first thing they told him was, told, her, told, told his mother was that he was killed while in the process of a home invasion. In fact, they told her that he was killed by the homeowner in the process of a home invasion. That was not even remotely true. So what, there's the presumption of his guilt and there's the presumption of their innocence. And I think that everyone should start asking themselves, why does everyone default to that? Are we doing it deliberately? Is it unwitting? Is it, is it, is it subtle? Is it covert presumptions regarding culture, ethnicity, ethnicity and identity? Why do those things happen? But Black people do not have the, the privilege, if you allow me to use that word. Yeah. To figure it out before taking action, because I know it's in place. No mask, no mask. I'm very careful about it. So, Brandon, uh, a week or two ago, I think you you released a video. Um, I think this was after Ahmad Aubrey before George Floyd was killed. If I'm if I'm getting that right, um, and the video was after George Floyd. After George after. Floyd, okay, and. Um, basically lamenting but I, 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 I as of last night it's been viewed over 80,000 times on Facebook um, yeah, that's and that, that's incredible but I noticed one of the first things you said is often when something like this happens you uh, release a statement a written statement but you didn't feel like you could do that at this point um, could you explain a little bit about what you meant by that statement, why why the video instead of releasing the kind of written statement? Yeah, so a couple of things. The first thing is I noticed that when someone looks at that 
sees that video, the, the, the George Floyd video was one in which it's very difficult to come to the defense of the offending party in that video. Mm-hmm. And yet some people managed to do so. And, and the, the concern I had was issuing, I noticed that writing out the statement, the, for, the format, there's, a, there's a, you know, the old saying that the medium is the message. And yeah, I think yeah. that when you write something out, it gives people the impression that this is a place for, for written theological dialogue around an issue. Instead of someone pouring out their heart, their discontent, their grief, and, going, and, and then revealing, being transparent during a time of mourning. So what would happen is if I wrote something out, um, I, I, I call them the Google search theologians, just this, <laughs> these guys who are, this is going to sound so bad, but the guys who are just in their mother's basement trying to figure out whether or not you're a Christian if you don't believe in the five points of Calvinism, that kind of thing. I didn't have time to get into that debate. I, I, so I decided that sometimes seeing the grieving person and hearing them yeah. will keep that type I, of behavior. I don't think you're actually talking about the theological particulars. You're, you're saying there's the kind of personality that wants to pick apart uh, kind of the secondary issues in, in your written piece absolutely. and ignore the bigger picture here. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 I, there was one open letter response to the, po- the statement that I issued regarding Ahmaud Arbery. And the thing I noticed was it was a it was a very long response. It was two two and a half times longer than what I wrote, and the and the response centered on the last three words in one sentence, and that sentence was not the thesis of what I said. Yeah. Mm. So having to have a having to have a theological back and forth with someone regarding a secondary point that's not the big idea of what I'm trying to communicate here, it resulted in I caught myself in the middle of doing it and said I'll never do this again. It it was a red herring that took everyone away from the original point. And it was, it was yeah. an exercise in us being brilliant in missing the point of what I'm trying to say. And I didn't want to do that again. You know yeah. how, how many problems would just be solved if every high school graduate were required to be able to recite, define, and identify logical fallacy? I mean, just, I mean, it's, it, you know, cultural, cultural issues and conflict aside, like, come on, man, just let's, Let's, let's make this a little bit easier. Um, yeah. You know, Brandon, one of the things that just struck me about that video in particular, because I know you, like you mentioned you're a big dude and you are a big dude and your personality is even bigger. Like mm-hmm. you just, you have a, a, uh, a charismatic presence that is pretty infectious. And I think the thing that just killed me when I first watched that video was seeing how completely exhausted and subdued you were. And I think even more than the words that you used, the um, the just general demeanor and tone that you had spoke far greater than the content of what you were trying to to communicate. So I think you're, you know, it, to your point about the medium being the message, you, you that was very very effective in that. Um, but there was something in there that really felt especially weighty and significant. Um, and you said, "I'm done." Right? You, you said, "I, I can't." There, there was clearly a, uh, this was clearly a tipping point for you in some way. And I'm just kind of curious, like what, what, what was behind those two words and, and what, how, what did you mean by that? Right. We, I think that within the church, you can have in-house debates. I think you should. Okay. And I, and I, I'm mature enough. I've been doing this long enough to recognize where it's just a moment where we can agree to disagree. I, I, 
I genuinely tease you. I made a point to do it before we came on here. I genuinely tease you because of your your understanding of baptism. You got you, you're the most Presbyterian people I've ever met in my life, <laughs> and I just cannot wait to sit down and let's, I'm going to shelve your Westminster Catechism for just a moment, and then we're going to have a biblical conversation regarding baptism. At no point, when I do that with the two of you, at no point. Do I find myself saying, or even remotely thinking, that I'm having a, a discussion about something that is that is the dividing chasm between us, and we're just in two entirely different. Hmm. That never comes up. I believe that what may happen is we're going to get into the presence of the King, and He's going to say, "Brandon, you almost had that baptism thing right," and He's going to tell you and Bryce that you almost got it right. Let me tell you what I actually mean by this. I think that we're, we're, we're both in the neighborhood, mate. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm more at the center of the neighborhood than you. But the, <laughs> but I think that we're both going to get that lecture from our king when we see him. The thing I'm troubled by is, for some reason, justice became a dividing line. And, and I'm having to deal with godly men, you know, publicly vocal, Bible-believing men who will tell me that it's inappropriate to address the gospel in the context of justice, or more appropriately, justice in the context of the gospel. Hmm. And and they don't even allow for the possibility that this is just an, uh, in a matter of in-house debate. So whenever I address the gospel as something that, I'm sorry, whenever I address justice as something that is inevitably present, wherever the gospel is present, I'm accused of preaching a false message. It's a false gospel. Hmm. In fact, the accusation was, I think that social justice is the gospel, and that's not true. That's not true. I believe that social justice is an inevitable byproduct of the gospel. You know, and oh, go ahead. I was just going to say one of the things that has really struck me about. Uh, I think I I don't remember thinking about this when in the aftermath of the Ferguson protests, but um, the the chant of "No justice, no peace" mm-hmm. is an incredibly biblically accurate thing. Right. When we think about the word for peace in the Old Testament, shalom, there yeah. is no concept of peace that does not include comprehensive human flourishing, aka justice. And so, well, and and even um, the uh, I think he's a South African missiologist, David Bosch, um, says that. Um, in some ways, maybe it's a fault in the English language that we translate the words righteousness and justice like they're two different words. You know, the Greek word dikaiosune, it means it's righteousness, but it's but it's also justice. That's not an issue in other languages. Uh, Spanish doesn't have a distinction between mm. um, justice and righteousness. Mm. And yet somehow that has become a dividing line in um in American, uh, you know, Western American Christianity. Judging by the look on Brandon's face, he just he looks like he's got something. <laughs> you, you gave me something else to check into. I, I, whenever I learned a long time ago that my brain does not contain everything I need to visit later, so I had to write that down because that was gotcha. that was that was me, right? There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do I do struggle with the, the fact that we create that line of demarcation yeah. between the gospel and justice. Brandon, I wonder and, if you could uh, help us understand how we've gotten to this point where in 2020 we think of uh, there being a dividing line between justice and righteousness in Christianity. Um, we're talking about amongst Christians here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple of things. I think that, that, that uh, I think that a couple of things that came, that resulted in that. If you think about it, it wasn't always that way. And then um, prior to the 16th century, 
uh, the church began to to detail, specify, nitpick the means by which one can be made right with God. And they did that for so long that the idea of justification got lost. The doctrine of justification by way of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, that got lost. And then you have the, the 16th century Reformation era where that correction occurs. Luther's job, Luther, Luther's agenda was not to to start a new thing. It was him to, he wanted to return to the old, the old idea. And Rome was, was not on board with that. So his message fixated on how the death of Christ justifies us. He, I'm not going to get into the details of how, because there's different, I understand how that works, but, but the death of Christ justifies us. We're saved by grace through faith alone. The emphasis there was on a, was, was apart from works. You're saved by grace through faith alone. And you can emphasize that area so much that you become progressively guilty of reductionism. So you turn the entire message into that one part of the message. You take you just get rid of everything else and say the gospel is Jesus died so that we can go to heaven. Now the, the errors of eschatology regarding us going to heaven are are numerous. But I think that what happened is we started with Martin Luther had to address justification by faith. And because of that, justification became the sole fruit Mm. of the gospel. Mm. Then you fast forward a century and a half, two centuries, and then you have great awakenings, both both in Europe and America. The ones that are most commonly discussed in our context are the ones in America. Mm -hmm. And you have names like George Whitfield and and Jonathan Edwards that come to mind, and the Wesleys that come to mind during those eras, and uh, and everyone misses the fact that that the point of the Great, Great Awakenings was justification, tent revivals, and evangelism. Sinners in the hands of an angry God was Jonathan Edwards trying to preach a sermon that would get everyone saved. Okay, mm-hmm. and the Reformation and the Great Awakenings are the foundational eras for evangelicals. That's where that's where we got our identity from. And I'm saying that it's inappropriate to for us to leave those two alone and just as the sole influencers because Martin Luther, love him if you will, he got the justification part right, but he was a brazen anti-Semite. And then you fast forward to the Great Awakenings and both Edwards and Whitfield owned slaves. Wesley was was uh, was an abolitionist. I do want to say that in his defense. He was he was that guy. But Wesley and I'm sorry, uh, 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 Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, they not only were pro-slavery, they owned slaves. Mm-hmm. Well, if those are defining points in evangelicalism's history, we are misleading ourselves if we think that those ideas don't get passed down generationally through their theology. It did. And it will miss other opportunities to fix it. So the, the, the civil rights era in the 20th century was an opportunity for evangelicalism to redefine itself and recognize that justice and human dignity are outworks of the gospel as well. But nope, we went straight back to the justification by faith that came from Luther and went back to the holistic language was based on which was based on Luther that came up came to prominence during the Great Awakenings. And we missed the human dignity. And because of that, we removed a fruit, one of the many fruits that are the outworkings of our gospel message. We we have truncated the gospel. Here's how I try to illustrate that. And then I want to hear from you. Mm. I have a pear tree in my front yard. I, I discussed this with Brad earlier, and it's a preacher thing. Preachers get giddy about illustrations. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I have a pear tree in my front yard, and I didn't know it was a pear tree because it has never borne any pears. It has never borne one pear in the entire time I've had the house. I've lived there for seven years, never never seen a pear. And I'm glad 
because my lawn is pristine. I don't want pears in the yard. I don't want to come through and collect pears before I cut the grass. Then one day the HOA hires a tree trimming company to come through and trim the trees. They didn't tell me. I come home one day and there's people in my yard with tree trimming tools and getting ready to trim the trees, the two trees that are in my front yard. They trim the one that's out by the sidewalk, then they come to the center of the yard and he says, we can't trim this one. And I asked him why not? And he says, because it's a fruit tree and the HOA does not want us to trim any fruit tree. I said, this is a fruit tree? I, I did not know that. How do you know that? He, he, he gave me a hard time. He says, I'm a tree trimmer. This is what I do. I know what a fruit tree looks like. And he says, it's a, it's a pear tree. I said, but I've never seen a pear. And he said, it's a domesticated pear tree. I said, what does that mean? He says, he says, you know, botanists have domesticated the ability for this tree to bear fruit. They've domesticated that out of the tree. And I asked, why would you do that? And he said, because you want the benefits of the tree. It's large, so it casts shade, and it's beautiful to look at, but you don't have to deal with the inconvenience of the fruit that it bears. Because we don't want to have to deal with the inconvenience, we domesticated the ability to bear fruit out of the tree. I immediately run to my car to get a notepad to write this down because he doesn't realize he's doing this, but he's giving me the sermon illustration of all time. <laughs> because I believe that we benefit from the absence of certain fruit that, that would derive from the gospel. We get rid of those fruits. We are preaching a domesticated gospel. Mm. So when I mention that justice is an inevitable byproduct, it's a fruit of the gospel message. People don't want that to be true because pursuing that fruit is going to be inconveniencing. It's going to be taxing. It's work that we don't want to fulfill. We want the beauty of the gospel. We want the, we want the shade that it casts, but we do not want to deal with its fruit. So we truncate the message. We domesticate the message to take things like justice out of it. And I'm saying that that could be the reason so many other areas of our lives are in disrepair. Mm. Marriages are broken because we don't apply the gospel to marriages. Mm. There's conflict between parents and children because in spite of the fact that Paul did it in Ephesians 5, we don't apply the gospel there. And violence exists in our community because we're not applying the gospel to our community. Ethnic rifts occur because while Paul applied the gospel to ethnic community in Ephesians chapter 2, we don't see the gospel as the means by which those things are, are, are addressed. We are mm. truncating the message. We're domesticating the message so we can have the beauty of the tree without having to deal with the inconvenience of its fruit. Dude, Brandon, you, you have not only given Bryce and I a sermon illustration that we will flagrantly steal. Uh, we edit that out of the, uh, the, the podcast so we can not have to cite our source. But, but also you have, exactly, you have also uh, connected some dots that Bryce and I have been trying to explore in this podcast in that we've been using Mark Sayers' definition of, of secularism as the pursuit of a kingdom without a king. And you, you, you put that side by side with what, what you've been described, what you just described with that pear tree analogy, and you realize that our culture is actually seeking, searching for, trying to taste and see the fruit that the church has stopped bearing. Mm. It is a condemnation of the evangelical church that, that our neighbors have said, you know what, this fruit that you say tastes so good, I don't mm -hmm. see it here. I'm going to go for it elsewhere. Yeah. I don't, not only are we telling people that, that okay, let's go, oh my goodness. Man. We, could be, we could do this all day. But the, they're saying to us, I don't see it. And it's not even that we're not pointing it out. It's that we have told them this tree doesn't bear that fruit. Oh. In fact, we're telling them, just accept Jesus as your Savior now and then endure 
until he gets back, and then you'll get all the fruit you want. And my question is, when did Christ decide, I'm going to be the kingdom, the king of eternity, but let you fend for yourselves here? Mm. That's not what I get out of the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He's the king there and here. And, it, and we, we, when he teaches us how to pray, when he gives us the model for prayer, he says, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He does not want for us to create this wait and see moment. He wants for us to live kingdom lives now. So we are to take the same gospel that both redeemed and restored us to the kingdom experience that Adam and Eve had in the garden. But he doesn't want to wait until the restoration has occurred. While his kingdom has not been consummated, it has been inaugurated. Mm. We're to live as though we are kingdom people now. So the same life, death, and burial and resurrection that gave us that, that deliverance is to be lived out now in every area of our lives. The gospel is not just so you can experience heaven. The gospel is so that everything that is broken can be made whole. That is officially the only sermon I'm going to preach for the rest of my life. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is intended to bring wholeness to everything that is broken. Was the relationship between humanity and God broken? Yes. And salvation was made whole because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But just apply that same life, death, and resurrection to our marriage, to our parenting, to our schools, to businesses, to ethnic relationships, and to mm -hmm. justice. Mm -hmm. So the gospel can be preached in a comprehensive manner. But instead, we're truncating it and telling people, in eternity, he will fix this. And your job right now is to wait until then so that you can get it then. It's almost like the church is calling is supposed to be to be the flourishing presence of Jesus in every sphere of life and not just the ones where we're trying to maintain our comfort or, or, or receive shade from the tree without the inconvenience of having to bear fruit. I came that you may have life and that you may have it in abundance. We're pretending as though his death gave us the ability to suffer well, but he gave us the keys to the kingdom. He gave us the keys to the kingdom. He promised us, mm -hmm. what you bind here, I will bind there. What you set free here, I will set free there in eternity. So we are not to just sit here and wait. We're to be the ambassadors of the kingdom. We named the church embassy mm -hmm. so people can be constantly reminded, reminded that they are ambassadors of a king. You don't wait for him to show up and do it for you. He says, I have all authority. And in light of that, go and make disciples. In other words, you are to replicate, you are to live out the kingdom agenda now. We're not waiting for anything. You do it now. It's not the dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. Oh, amen. Amen. Oh my gosh. Um, that's, that's beautiful, Brandon. Um, and yet here we are in 2020 where for... Um, uh, Gosh, I'm trying to decide which direction I even want to go here. Uh, let, let's just talk about the church. Where, um, to be to be frank, I start talking about that, which I completely agree with, in an affluent congregation of mostly white Americans, mm. and all of a sudden, I got to worry about the viability of my church because mm. um, 
we don't want to we don't want to hear that the gospel has um, kind of connotations uh, beyond the pursuit of my personal comfort. Really, uh, Jesus has become the cherry on top, not the foundation of my whole faith. What, how can you can you help me <laughs> as a pastor? Like, what do we do? What 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 do we do when um, you know we see this happening uh, at a national level, and yet? Um, to to talk in in uh, to my congregation about the justice implications of the gospel means people are going to wh- wh- well, what do okay, we do first, I, I love okay I, I think every church planter who has ever existed can appreciate <laughs> the the concern you have about just alienating a group of people and them leaving they leave in droves because you preached the truth to them uh, so a couple of things number one. I would rather people leave because of the message uh, than me. I'd rather they leave because of what I said instead of me being the thing that, the one who pushed them out. And I say that because that means I have to lean into what I genuinely believe and I'm able to defend from, from what the Bible says on these issues. And, and I've, I've said this before in public. If you don't approve of what I said, I think your beef is not with me. It's with Paul. It's with Jesus. It's that kind of thing. If I'm able to say that when the sermon is over, then I sleep pretty well. That's the first thing. The second thing is people are going to leave because we are well, we are inclined to be drawn toward ear tickling. And it's just not your job. I take seriously when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders and he says, I am innocent of your blood because I did not abdicate the responsibility to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I always flip that because if the fact that he preached them the whole word is the reason he's innocent of their blood, then am I guilty mm. if I withhold mm. truth from people? Am I guilty yeah. of people's blood? I can't take that lightly. Yeah. I think any preacher should filter that before they step into a pulpit. Mm. Am I going to step down from this platform having pleased God and and am, am I genuinely innocent of the blood of the people? Mm. But here's, how I, here's some practical things I like to drive home message-wise. I think that a church that is deliberately... Um, a, a capital C church, the universal church that is deliberately segregated is never going to get this right. Mm-hmm. It's never, we're never going to get it right. And I, and I want to be careful here. I'm not talking about diverse. I'm talking about an integrated body of believers. It's possible for you to have a room full of people who look different, but they're not different. So I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about, or, or here's the other problem. They can all be different on Sunday morning, but as soon as the two of you wrap up your sermon, you give your benediction, and pray everyone out of the room, they then go their separate ways and live lives that have nothing to do with one another. I'm saying that these lives have to actually integrate. And here's why. You will never gain the lenses of someone who's not like you without being around people who are not like you. And those lenses are necessary so you can see justice the way they see justice. So, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't want to do the illustration thing today, but that's how I, that's how I do it. I don't, do it. I don't use visuals. Okay. I don't, I'm not good with PowerPoint or a keynote. I just, Give word pictures. Yeah. So my wife yeah. drives a Chrysler Town and Country. And before we got married, I promised her that she would not have to drive a minivan. I promised her that because she, my wife is just, she's <laughs> much cooler than I am. And, and, and the, the minivan thing does not align with her brand. It's just, it doesn't work. Um, and then we had children and her car was too small, especially when you have rear facing car seats, that just was not going to work. Yeah. So we put her in, I, I decided it's time for you. Time to get a new car. And she told me what she wanted. She wanted me to buy a Suburban. It had to be black with dark tint. And it had to have 24-inch rims. That kind of Lifted thing. Escalade. Yeah, oh my goodness. And, I, and I'm a church planter. I was like, girl, we're going to do we're gonna do good just to get you something yeah. that starts every time you turn the key. <laughs> so we are, we're getting ready to move. We went to Dallas to visit our parents for Christmas. And it was the first time 
post children that we drove. So I rented a Chrysler Town and Country for that drive. And I had a plan there. I want her to experience it. So she was out shutting it down without having experience. And by the time we got to Oklahoma City, she said out loud, I think I could. I mean, it has stow and go seating. And it has a DVD player. So the kid, and it has Bluetooth headphones. So we're not even having to listen to what the children are watching. It's just a sweet deal. <laughs> and, and then we rented the same car on the way back from Dallas. And by the time we got back, she was okay with us buying it. We go to yep. the dealership the next day. Yep. And as we're driving out of the dealership in our brand new Chrysler Town & Country, a Chrysler Town & Country passes right by us. And I turned to my wife and I said, we, the word got out that we bought this car. <laughs> and we're, we're trendsetters. We're the Kardashians of, of minivans. <laughs> so everyone's buying minivans because we bought them. But before we got home, I saw five more. And I did some research on it and found out that the Dodge Caravan slash Chrysler Town & Country is the most sold minivan in the history of minivans. And I had never noticed it. Never noticed. It's it's on the street every time I go out. I never noticed it until I had a Chrysler Town & Country experience. I didn't see them. Hmm. And that carries over to the benefit of ethnic integration, cultural integration. Until you experience the world through the lenses of someone else, you cannot see what they see. Their lenses don't create the reality, but the lenses allow them to see the reality that you cannot see. And where do they get those lenses? Your experiences inform your lenses, and those lenses inform the manner in which you see the world. Experience lends itself to epistemology or knowledge, and then that knowledge lends itself to your view of ethics or justice. Hmm. And I'm telling you, that that's the reason I posted the comment regarding the mask, because my friends don't see the same thing I see. And it's Mm -hmm. because they haven't had the same experiences I've had. But I know what it's like to walk down the street and decide I can't put the hoodie on. In spite of the fact that it's cold, I can't put it on because of the attention that will draw. But the person who doesn't have that same concern can't see the the displays of injustice that I notice right away. Mm -hmm. You have to have the experience which gives you the understanding, which gives you the, the lenses to see the injustice. Now, some people will say, I can't have every experience, but you can have me. And once you have me, you have my experiences. So it's the church's job to integrate so you can have that mixing of not just cultures, but experiences, because you adopt new lenses to see the world from the same perspective as the people whom you claim to love. Hmm. Man, I, that is profoundly beautiful and helpful. And, and I wonder... <laughs> Like one of the things, one of the aspects about this moment in history, uh, besides the fact that, oh yeah, there is still a, a global pandemic going on. Like, like just, just the fact that this has become such a, a overwhelming uh, crisis. And by this, I mean the, the social turmoil uh, that, is, that has been sparked by the recent string of police brutality. Um, this feels different than it did in 2014. And... I don't know. I'm curious what you think about this because what you just described, it's almost as if um, uh, Ferguson was a pregame practice for something that within the church, this it feels like we are approaching, if not already at a tipping point where our experience is either going to have to fundamentally change or die. And, and what I mean by that is when you were talking about the, 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 the Great Commission and how... Uh, we are called to be, right? we're functionally calling to be fruit born of the gospel, to then be planted so, such that we bear other fruit and other people taste and see the Lord is good. And that bears more fruit. And that we have this reciprocal great commission effect, right? Um, 
you and I were talking earlier about this quote from Tim Keller, who, you know, we quote enough to be the fourth member of the Trinity. And I think <laughs> the Trinity is okay with that because they're like, no, he's right. Um, but he said recently, uh, when the world sees us doing evangelism, they just see us recruiting. When they see us doing justice, they see God's glory. So to pull together, Brandon, what you just finished saying with Bryce's question around like, what do we do? And, and also this experience that we are living in a culture that is longing for the fruit of the kingdom. And, and I just wonder if, if yes, we are, if, if the alternative is death, but I, I wonder if the alternative uh, to that is actually the very kind of renewal that we have, we have been longing for. Hmm. And until the church responds in such a way that says the gospel is this and is not that, right? We have a great commission that Keller articulated beautifully by recovering a sense of, of, of justice in the church. But there's also a great omission that we have got to wrap our heads around and, and start speaking into. And I want to have you respond to that. But, but the reason why I'm asking that question is because last night, President Trump uh, used, uh, tear gas and physical disproportionate physical force to move peaceful protesters away from the St. John's Episcopal church in Lafayette square, which is across the street from the white house. He used physical force to move peaceful protesters, including the rector of that church out of the way so that he could use tax funds to, to do a photo op in front of the church and held up a Bible. And I, I, um, I, have been, I have been preaching to our people the importance of loving your enemies as yourself. Do not, you know, bless those who curse you. Uh, those who abuse you, you know, give to them more. If they take your possessions, don't ask for them back. Like there's so much relevant there. And then um, I, the whole time that's been happening, I've been thinking about when Jesus walks into the temple and overturns the money changers tables. And what is the difference? Like, why does Jesus do that then? And it realized with that moment last night, it is because it is when the church clouds and, and conflates their worship and witness. And this feels like that moment where the church, the evangelical church has been conflating and clouding our worship and witness in ways that is a great omission and has been that has replaced the great commission. And I wonder if this tipping point is into justice and into a recovery of a comprehensive, truly evangelical gospel, but it's going to require some repentance. And I, I, I wish I, I should have had a more specific question than that, but I wanted no, to you do, you do keep, and, 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 and because I wanted to set you up for this because I, I feel like this is, that is, that is, that's what we're talking about right now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So a couple of things. Number one, uh, uh, I'm glad you actually mentioned the event that happened um, last night. The one of the things that concerns me is is this is this what we've come to where the Bible is now a prop in a photo op? Yeah, and and because I'm I noticed how how some people received that received that well. But to Keller's point, the walking to stand in front of the church and holding the Bible up was essentially evangelism. It's pop evangelism. It's unspoken evangelism. But to but to gas those who were peacefully protesting so that you could do it, that would have been, that was an opportunity to show justice. And you know which one of the two of those things the world's going to be impressed by? Not by how high you hold that Bible in front of the church, but by how you treated the people who were out there in the square. Mm -hmm. 
God. That's what everyone's going to take note of. And, and the fact that you treated them so poorly is the reason they're going to walk away. No one cares about this, frankly, unopened, pristine Bible you're holding up. They're going to pay attention to how you treated the human beings who are made in the image of God who are out in the square. So, so when I look at that scenario and I say that we've gotten to this point, we've, we've arrived at a point where the gospel and, and, the, and the written message behind our gospel has been demoted to being the prop mm. in a photo op. I'm, I, I'm troubled by this, but I think what happened is, among the things, is we now derive our theology from our politics instead of letting our politics be shaped by sound biblical theology. Mm. Absolutely. And so so since we flipped it, then the gospel has to get redefined and justice has to be redefined. I want to be very clear on this. The people who will oppose what I'm saying regarding justice for George Floyd or for Ahmaud Arbery and for the unfortunately long list of people who I could listen, Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, I could just go down a list. Mm. The people who will oppose that the thing that's troubling for the world, and I don't blame them, the thing that's troubling for them is that same group of people have a theory of justice. It's just self-serving. So justice is a high priority when it benefits them. But when it's not something that they're having to deal with, when it's not an injustice that attacks them daily, then justice becomes a secondary discussion. So the same people, I'll give you a prime example. Hmm. That, and I don't disagree with them on this one. My problem is they're inconsistent. So the, so the same friends of mine who will rail for the for the sanctity of life, and they'll base their abortion messages on the sanctity of life. My problem with them is they have placed an expiration date on life's sanctity, or they've placed an ethic identity on life's sanctity. So I'm saying that the same person who preaches a sermon against abortion should have stood firm and preached an advocating sermon for Mount Arbery mm-hmm. because the 25-year-old's life is as valuable. It's just as much a display of God's image as the prenatal human being mm-hmm. for whom we are advocating. And the world is not merely pushing back against the pro-life position. They're pushing back against the inconsistent application of the pro-life position. Mm. Mm-hmm. The pro-life position is one I espouse, but I don't blame the world from walking away from it. Because if they're, they're looking at us and saying, wait a minute, if you mean it so inconsistently, then do you actually mean it? So we have to back up and have a coherency. We have to do a, an assessment of our of, uh, of the coherency of our Christian worldview, because I will contend that the world is troubled by how inconsistently we will apply the doctrines that we hold dearly. We'll pursue justice in one regard, but if it doesn't involve us, we'll ignore it in another regard. The, the human beings who were in that square, who were peacefully, pro- I, mean, I want to be very clear on this. Yeah. They were peacefully protesting. These were not looters. This was not a riot. To gas them as the prelude to a photo op where you're going to hold up a Bible for evangelicals to co-sign is a display of us only losing more credibility. It's mm. a moment in which that much more of our message gets lost in the, in the, in the, in the white noise that pun was not intended. And it gets lost in the, in the, in the senselessness that, that comes out of our mouths. If that, if we, if people can look at us and say, he gassed them and they held up a Bible and then evangelicals raved about it. Then when we get to preach a gospel message about how, we can be made right with God. That's as much a clanging symbol mm. as the Bible being held up after gassing human beings. Us. Yeah. <clears throat> so blasphemy that we would we would co we would be complicit with and affirm the the blatant and explicit violations of the third commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain, which means yeah. to co opt God's who God is 
for a purpose other than God's. And I don't care if you agree with that political purpose or not, or agree that it is a, a good political purpose, if it is in any way, shape, or form not God's. It, I saw somebody say it is, an, it is a unmitigated, uh, unmerited act of extreme mercy that God didn't strike him dead with a lightning bolt in that moment. Right. It is actually, it is grace that he withheld what such a blatant, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm speechless. And yeah, Bryce. Brandon, I wonder if, um, if you can help us think through, um, I, I feel like we could continue this conversation for a long time and there's a lot to be frustrated about. Um, yeah. I wonder if you have any thoughts on what what opportunities does this open up for us? Um, it seems like there are, there are landmines left, right, and center of ways we can uh, we can handle this badly. Um, I mean, even the distinction you just made between uh, these are peaceful protesters, these aren't looters, uh, is kind of highlighting there there are people who are responding to uh, racial injustice in appropriate ways. There are people who are responding to it in inappropriate way. Yeah, um, yeah. What opportunities do you see for the church uh, at this time to, um, to step into this moment in a faithful kind of way? Uh, how, how can we help people follow Jesus more faithfully? Yeah, I think the church's job here is to show what a productive protest can look like. Okay, so I, I'm very clear on this. Looting is not protest. And, I, and I'm amazed at, at having to say that out loud. Um, it's, but looting is not protesting. It's a disservice to your, to your cause. Uh, the idea of burning your community down should be the last thing on our minds if our goal is to, re, to, is to build and seek the health of the community. So, so, the, so looting a community is actually a setback in the process. I want to be very clear on this. It's not, it's not protesting. It's also, it also undermines your message because what you've done now is you've provided the distraction. You provided the red herring that exactly. will distract people from the legitimate message that you have. It's just irresponsible. So my appeal to those who are looting and rioting, and I know that there are that they are out there. I know that they are, I'm not denying the existence, but my appeal to them is stay home. And I turn to the protesters and I say, be productive and do and be and be protesters unapologetically. And I think the church can show. What a, what a biblical protest can look like. How, I do want to say this, though. My concern is that we will evaluate rioting and looting and we'll treat it as a cause when, in fact, it's not. It's an effect. Mm. Mm. Because it's possible for you to tell someone that, that their concerns are invalid and any protesting is inappropriate. You can tell them that for so long that they will take action to make you listen. Mm. So, uh, so uh, uh, you have you have football players. Colin Kaepernick is the one that gets attention, gets a you know gets the recognition most. But he yeah. was not the only one. Mm. But Colin Kaepernick takes a knee during the national anthem. A lot of people don't notice, but if you read the fourth, you review the fourth verse of the national anthem. There's a there's a phrase in which in which it celebrates the deaths of slaves and the hirelings who were warring against the uh, against American soldiers. The, the, the national anthem is not a it's not a song. It's a poem. We only sing the first verse of it but there's four and you read the fourth one it it's it celebrates that that england paid slaves even england told slaves if you join our fight in this war then we will give you your freedom when the war is over they were probably lying but you had nothing to lose because you won't remain a slave if you didn't do it sure. 
And then they also hired soldiers to, to add to the existing army. So the song celebrates the deaths of the hirelings and the slaves who were warring against them. And I would contend that it is, it is entirely inappropriate to obligate a Black man to stand in honor of a song that does that, okay? If someone decides to do it, that's one thing. But to make it compulsory mm. is an entirely different issue. So what does he do? He doesn't stand for it. And everyone misses this part of the story. He didn't take a knee at first. He was seated. He was. He didn't make an announcement. He didn't come out there with a with a with an opposing fight song. He didn't bring his own marching band in. He sat quietly on the bench and did not stand for that song. A friend of his, who was a serviceman, said that sitting is disrespectful, and it was his friend's suggestion that he take a knee. And he took that knee, and the world fell apart. Yeah, it was a quiet knee. It was a silent knee, and he was called all kinds of jerks and the N-word and, and unpatriotic and disrespectful. And you know what Black people think? He sat on a knee quietly, and you told him that his protest was inappropriate. Men are dying, mm. and you're telling him that his quiet protest is inappropriate. You can do that for so long, and then people will say, okay, if you don't like the quiet one, then we're going to bring the noise. And that's how you get rioting. You can ignore someone's pain and criticize their vocalizations of their pain for so long that they're going to bring a protest that you cannot ignore. So what we're noticing is not the cause. It is an effect. It's not the action. This is yeah. the reaction. Yeah. So evaluating as though it's only an action is a disservice to what's happening. Well, and this goes back to your point about the importance of experience. Um, I, I came across, it's, I think it's, it's, it's straight up viral now, but I came up ac across, um, Antonio French, who, uh, is a former alderman in St. Louis who, uh, rose to activism and, and has been very active since Ferguson. Um, and he posted this video of, uh, two black men who were uh, arguing. And you can tell from the context that the older one, who's about 45, uh, he says he's 45 because he asks him, you know, how old are you, 45? Uh, it, it's implied that he was doing some kind of looting or, or destruction of property or whatever. And the younger guy, he said, okay, I'm, and they're, they're yelling at the top of their lungs at each other. And the 31 year old, he says, I'm 31. You've been doing this for longer. I'm doing this too. And this is not the way. We cannot do this. Yeah. And then... And then, and the, and the 40, the older guy was just like, I'm tired, man. I'm angry. They don't care about us. I'm ready to die for this. And the 31, the younger guy grabs a 16 year old kid who was watching. And he says, he's 16. He's 16. He's got to do this after us. And he, he yeah. and the, the older guy is kind of like so upset. He, he stopped, kind of stops listening. And the, the 31 year old guy, he, he turns to the 16 year old kid and he says, I did this 10 years ago. You're going to be doing it, this at 26. You're going to be doing this 10 years from now. Yeah. And you've got to figure out, this is not the way. You have to figure out a better way. And the part that I, the, the part that breaks my heart every single time I see it is when his voice breaks. Yeah. And he says, you got to figure it out because we ain't doing it. And he, he, in this, and it is one of the most biblical pictures of lament that I've seen in the midst of this. That is, I know, I know what I can't do and I know what I need to do and it's not working. And I, it, it was just this picture of helplessness. And, and I know that it, it hit, it, it spread throughout social media as this kind of picture of, of like courage. And I, I didn't feel like that was courage that felt like, like hopelessness. And, and I don't, I don't think that we can, and I hope that this is one of the very few redeem quali redeeming qualities of social media 
um, that, that we can leverage it for in a redemptive way is this, this aspect of experience. But like, I have not seen or felt in, in, in this whole conversation, how the, the, the empathetic bridge I needed to, to truly understand what it must be like to, to feel helpless, like you were caught between impossible options and choices and, and it won't work anyway. Mm-hmm. And that that would span generations. And I'm just like, like, I know I'm sitting here describing what is obvious to your experience and common. And, I, but, but like, I, I feel helpless, um, translating that experience in a way that makes a difference too. And I think, I think, I think if we're human, we're all struggling with this. Um, Mm -hmm. But just to your point about like, it is kind of easy to say from afar, yes, right. It is, it is not right to loot or riot and it is understandable. And that sounds really great in a textbook, Yeah, but it's a whole nother thing to, to, to bear the weight of that. If you read, uh, if you read, you, you know, Brad, that I'm a fan of Dietrich Bonner. Mm, And, um, he was my, he was the subject of my first master. I am a, don't always agree with him theologically, but I think our debates are in, Mm -hmm. but his ethics Mm. is rock solid. Can't get around it. I, I had trouble finding anything, a better, Meta ethic than that which came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and one of the things he said was, "It is inappropriate. It is inappropriate to come to principled conclusions, to make a list of do's and don'ts when you're not the one having to confront the ethical scenario." He's he was not a fan of Immanuel Kant, who just mm-hmm. came up with this categorical imperative, and categorical and, and Immanuel Kant said, "This is what you do in that situation," <laughs> and and he said, "Immanuel Kant, you're not the one who's having to save the life. You're not having the one. You're not the one having to make the hard decision." And so some of the immediate proximity Mm. to the experience will inform the approach you have to the ethical decision making. So for someone to look at a, that, cause I saw that same video Mm. and I disapprove with the posture that the 45 year old man had. And I affirm the posture that the 31 year old man had. And I also affirm that he, he still had just enough hope to try speaking to the life of a teenager who's going to have to do this Mm. in his adulthood. I saw that video. Mm. And while I disapprove of what the 45 men's posture was, I got to tell you what he's dealing with. He hasn't been dealing with this for 31 years. He hasn't been dealing with this for 15, 16 years like a teenager. Mm. This is all he has known. And so I, I mentioned this at, at, in a post not, not too long ago, that, that patience is a virtue. Hope is a virtue, but they are taxing. Mm. You, can, you can pursue hope in the face of apparent hopelessness so long that you snap. And I think we have to be gracious toward him and his moment of anger, because while I disapprove of his approach, I understand what made the snap. Mm -hmm. The idea of, if you watch a man die while pleading for his life and on two separate occasions calling for his mother, whom I now know died a year ago, Mm -hmm. That gave me a whole different perspective on it. He was calling out for his mother, whom he knew had died a year ago. That will that will make you snap. The we, we discussed this in an earlier meeting, Brad, you and I did, but the I think that one thing I need to come up is we're not in a season of just reset. We have we've had a setback. Yeah. We've had a setback. And I think the setback did not go back five, six, seven years. It goes back 60 years. This one is worse than Michael Brown because it was preceded by Michael Brown. Mm, yeah. That's why it's worse. Yeah. This one was this one is this one is worse than than Tamir Rice. This one is worse than Trayvon because it was preceded by those incidents. And what everyone is doing is they're treating each of the moments as a snapshot in history without recognizing it 
recognizing it as linked to the previous historical moments. But as they culminate, each successive moment, each subsequent moment becomes heightened and worse because it's linked in the minds of of those who are enduring it. It's linked to the preceding moment. The solution to that is, even if you're not the one experiencing it, endure it with those who are, and that will keep you from separating it from the previous moments. Mm. So right now what's happening is the debate on the street during a riot is whose approach was better, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X? That's a 60-year-old discussion. Jeez. Malcolm X died in 1965, okay? This is, that's a 60-year-old discussion. You know why that's coming up? Because everyone's looking at a man who had a knee on his neck while pleading for his life. And the question is, how is this different from 1961? What we did before must not have worked. We've had a civil rights, we've had, we had a civil rights act in 1964, 65, and 68. And then fast forward to 2020, and a man died in plain view of witnesses, and cameras in 2020 with a knee on his neck. The idea, now everyone's, everyone's missing this. Hmm. It's not that he killed him. It's that he killed him knowing that people were watching, which gave him, which gives everyone the impression he thinks he can do this with impunity. Hmm. How is that different from the Klan of the early 20th century? We've had that type of setback where people have to ask, are asking themselves, what will our new approach to this be? Because what we've been doing for the past century up in your past half century hasn't worked. So what do we do? You know, we, we've been saying for this podcast that our our functional reality, uh, because of the pandemic, the, our functional reality has finally caught up with our spiritual reality. That this mm-hmm. this situation has been true the whole time. We are time. being held accountable to it, and I think that applies one hundred percent to what you're talking about. Is is yes, it is a setback and a step forward in that it is exposing what has always been there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just, so, and, and I want to, you know, we're like you, like we have all said now, we could literally do this all day. And I want, I want to have you back because I don't, this cannot be an only conversation. Um, I think it has to be an ongoing mm-hmm. one. Uh, but I want to, I, I think it might be helpful to end with, if, with all of that being true, and how does a, a church like the table or resurrection OC, how do Christians who are not in the urban centers where protests are happening, where change is most needed, where a lack of integration is is part of the problem. What does it look like to either uh, participate, uh, support, mm. um, or, or or in any way meaningfully contribute to this from yeah. a graphic distance? Uh, because I will tell you, when I when I addressed this topic in my own church on Sunday morning, the overwhelming response from our people was, was, was genuine, gen, genuine lament and contrition and a longing to know how, how yeah. what to do, how to respond. Okay. So a couple things on that. I, I believe it's, I, I, we have to clarify some terms real quick before we can explain how, uh, some of some of the things that we can do to approach this. Um, often when we talk about ethnicities, we make the mistake of using the word race. And that's an unsound word. In fact, I always tell people that the word racism is racist because the word racism presumes the existence of more than one race. So we have to then revisit some of the terms we're using because the fact is, biblically speaking, there's one race, the human one. Now, the human race is comprised of several ethnicities, and those ethnicities are comprised of even more cultures. So it's possible for two Black people to look the same but be culturally different. I have a good friend named Emmanuel who's from Ghana. And I am from Texas and Texas is a planet to itself. So (laughs) 
people look at us and they see the same person, but we're fundamentally different people culturally, even though ethnically we're very similar. Mm -hmm. So we have to visit this, the race issue. And the reason I make sure that we address that there's a difference between race and ethnicity, and then even beyond that, there's cultures, Mm -hmm. is it's possible for a church to be culturally integrated, even if it cannot be ethnically integrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, I think it's just, I mean, I know what it's like. I've had this conversation with people where you go into, uh, I talked to a person who passed through the church, a man who passed through the church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he said, Brandon, honestly, there's just not a gang of black people here. So how do you, how do we value diversity? How do we value integration? I said, when you cannot be ethnically integrated, you can still be culturally integrated. So the things that cultures who are not present value, mm-hmm. the daily, the daily toils of those people, the things that that they are that they rejoice in, you can make those a part of your your church's cultural makeup so that even those who are absent can be valued. And that's a pastor's job and it's his means of letting the people in the body get a glimpse into how the world is seen through the lenses of someone else. So that's one thing. The second thing is much of what we're dealing with here, and I'm not I'm I deliberately separate, usually, I deliberately separate my message is from any political structure. We don't let politicians come and get a platform at the church to campaign, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, okay? But the much of what we're dealing with here is a, is a systemically racist infrastructure. So if you value the lives of people who are different from you, then you bring those values into a voting booth and it informs the decisions that you're making. I heard I heard uh, uh, Killer Mike say this in Atlanta. He says, if, oh, yeah. he says instead of rioting and, and burning the city down, he says, you, you have the power to address this because you have platforms and you also have voting access. Hmm. So you go into those booths and you make decisions on people, not based on their party, but how do they define human dignity? Hmm. How will they address human worth? And when they say pro-life, how much, of, how much do they mean by that? Does it have an expiration? Okay, that's, that's something else that we all need to be mindful of. You, it's, it's get rid of your party for a second and actually vote on Bible principles. That's, I'm talking to the church right now. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we have to engage those matters. But then the other thing, this is key, don't simply, and I see the two of you doing this. Hmm. I see the two of you applying this third act. Don't simply sit back and amen me when I confront injustice. Say it with me. Hmm. Because when I say something, I am the large, angry black man who said something. You can't say it by yourself either, because that's paternalistic. That's a that's that's a pat on the head for the people who can't take care of themselves. No, black people can take care of themselves. Okay, but when you say it with me, it's prophetic. Mm. I say it alone, it's angry. You say it alone, it's paternalism. It's a patriarchy. Mm. But when we say it together, it's a prophetic moment. Mm. And I tell people all the time, the civil rights movement did not get traction Mm. until white clergy stood next to Martin Luther King and the other black clergymen Mm. in Alabama. They marched across the bridge to Selma with him. And imagine what it would have been had the governing authorities who would have, without reservation, beaten the black crowd senseless. They did on the previous attempt. How would it have looked if they'd done that with nuns, with, with European nuns who flew to the States and an Anglican priest who came to be part of that march. When you we all do it together, it's a prophetic moment instead of it just being the angry message from me. Mm. I, I think that people who are trying to figure out how this works. I can only give you the sweep because we don't have time. I can only give you the sweeping statements, but see every culture as one that you value in your body. So integrate the body, even if there is no diversity of ethnicity. Mm. 
and then mm-hmm. speak up on their behalf, even in their absence, speak up on their behalf because your voice added to mine makes our message a prophetic one. Wow. I feel like that might uh, that might be the next the the next episode we do is is like okay let's let's not just talk about this in principle let let's let's learn and figure this out yeah awesome yeah I I, I feel so helpless uh, in this whole thing I I, I think this is super helpful Brandon and yet in some ways we're we're not we're just barely even getting started here right um, yeah it's 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 the marathon thing you're in the first mile of a twenty six point two mile rate and you if you think about that. You'll find yourself saying, man, this is going to be hard. Yeah. But we got to we gotta run one mile at a time and then mark the wins along the way. Hmm. But, hmm. but while I think we should celebrate each time we, get a, we hit a new benchmark, we shouldn't settle. And I think that what we're being asked to do here is because we signed a Civil Rights Act, because we signed three of them in the 1960s, everyone celebrated. And that celebration also resulted in us settling. And, and we didn't realize that we now have to apply these Civil Rights Acts and hold our leaders accountable for doing so. So when, mm-hmm. and again, I'm very reluctant to make comments regarding the president. Yeah. But our present president makes it difficult to remain silent. <laughs> mm-hmm. When he when he does what he did last night, and he he gas bombed, he you know sends tear gas to a, a a peaceful crowd for a photo op. It's the church's job, not just mine. It's the church's job to say something. That's not a political issue. That's an ethical issue. That's a theological issue. Yeah. And to remain silent when it happens, or what's worse, to celebrate that he did it, it undermines our gospel now. Yeah, I, I know uh, y- you've got to go, right? Can I ask you one one more follow-up question? Yeah, Or should we... Um, should I'll take we it. What you got? Um, I, I'm wondering if you can speak at all to the role of lament in this. I feel like it's kind of... Um, rattling around in the background and um we we've been brad and i have been talking about one of the solutions to well the 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 covid pandemic situation has to be we have to learn how to lament we have to learn how to um you know direct our sadness back towards god in a biblical and healthy way um and clearly that's that's even more true in light of racial injustice in our country. So I'm going to start with the pandemic situation mm-hmm. and and then work it back to the to the ethnic. Uh, I, I have mentioned the president more times today than I have in the past four years. The thing that concerned me with how he approached the pandemic is his goal was he's. I'm using his terms. I'm using his own words. It's it, when he would received challenge from journalists regarding how he handled it in the beginning. Um, he would say that he handled it that way because he wanted to be the purveyor of hope, want to give them hope. And um, and so I don't, want to, I don't want them to get the impression that we're losing. And sometimes he would communicate that so-called hope at the expense of the, of the reality, at the expense of what we're dealing with. And that included having rallies in both February and March, getting thousands of people in a room um, when he had more information regarding the pandemic than and uh, I say that because that's the that is the that is the typical Western approach to hard circumstances. We have to it, it, at the very least we have to give the appearance of being okay. <laughs> but the fact is, the appearance of okay will only prolong how long you're not okay. <laughs> so so instead of grieving the scenario, <laughs> instead of responding in kind, we gave the fake appearance of being okay. And then you fast forward four months, and now. More than 100,000. I'm not blaming any individual for this right now. I want to be very clear on this because I know people are going to listen to this and I'm going to get emails. I'm not blaming any individual for this. No human being, to my knowledge, no individual created 
a worldwide pandemic that was going to result in 100,000 deaths in America. I know some of you think otherwise, but I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't believe that. We had an episode on conspiracy theories. Don't worry, we covered that. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear yeah. you say that. <laughs> but the thing I can't help but notice is we are not properly mourning the loss of so much. <laughs> in fact, we are trying to bury how big that loss is so we can get back to normal. We can get back to reopening the country. I said, okay, have a proper plan to reopen the country in place. But first, let's pause for a second and take note of this. 100,000 people died in a span of three months. That's no small thing. That is something you pause to mourn because that mourning gives you perspective on what just happened yeah. before you go forward. The problem with what happened um, in, in Minnesota, and I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's this whole George Floyd, uh, the, uh, you know, whenever something happens on on social media, it becomes uh, a challenge. So there's a George Floyd challenge. Oh, I haven't seen this. Where no. people, yeah, it's disgusting. People are posing in the same posture as George Floyd was. I'll send you, I'll send you an image of it. My wife sent it to, it to me this morning. Hmm. They're posing with the same posture as the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck. They're taking a picture of themselves and posting at the social media. It's called the George Floyd Challenge. So not only have we lost the ability to lament a genuinely horrible moment, but to avoid lament, we have to lean into horrible, destructive, inconsiderate, non-empathetic entertainment. And if you do that and then move forward, then the change that should have come out of this moment will get lost. So I would contend that there's no institution on the planet that understands justice in the same way the church does. The church is the only place where justice is based on a message that makes justice viable. But it's also the only institution in the world where you can have genuine benefit that comes out of lament because we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So you want to lean into God with our lament right now and get the benefits of this lesson before you move forward. Because the same 20-somethings who are posting photos of themselves with the knees on one another's neck and mocking the moment, they're only going to grow up to be the 50 and 60-year-olds who reproduce that moment in the future. And we'll find ourselves having had this opportunity to learn and missed it and therefore re-replicate it in the future. The church has to be the voice that makes everyone stop and mourn the life that was lost. An image bearer died. Dude, it strikes me that lament, the way you're describing this, it's as if lament is upstream of both mercy and justice. And if you don't have lament, then life becomes trivialized, and therefore we lose the emotional capacity to extend mercy. But in that trivialization of life, we've also, we've also so marred the imago day in others that we we functionally dehumanize and, and that's the only way to cope with with the experience of of suffering without lament is to trivialize and erode both justice and mercy mm. i want to I, I feel like it is it, the the resources when you say that the church is the institution that has the capacity to do this i i think that is the 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 note we have to end on because the only hope that we have in that is that the the strength to do so does not come from those who are in the midst of suffering. It comes from the one who already suffered, right? It comes from the one who is in the midst of and demonstrated his capacity to redeem suffering by, by sitting in the midst of it, by lamenting 
the spiritual state of the very people who are crucifying him. Hmm. Be able to say, Lord, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do with, with stakes in his hands and feet on the cross is a capacity we need, but he actually offers it. Yeah. And, and I, uh, in, a, in a season where social media and the news, it just feels like all of us, almost, it almost feels like all of us individually are, are, are at the whim of the emotional anxiety and, um, and fear of, of what's going on in our country right now. And, and we're not without an anchor in the midst of that. But that anchor is not experienced individually. It's only experienced in the community and an and institution that is the church. And so I feel like I, I say all that because Brandon, I, I, as best as we're able to in the midst of a pandemic, I feel like this, this conversation is itself a demonstration of that, of that capacity and that hope, because without that suffering savior, we are unable to actually come together across these divides. We're actually unable, um, no matter how, how much cultural uh, ethnic or ethnic alignment we do have or don't have, that is the umbrella that makes all of this. And um, absolutely, I'm just, I'm just, I'm really grateful for how uh, it would be so easy for you to become cynical and and frustrated and pissed off. And I wouldn't blame you in the least. And yet in the midst of this, as someone who is far more affected by this directly than either Bryce or I, you, you're demonstrating the very power of God in the midst of it to, 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 to sustain that hope. And that is encouraging for me. It's Absolutely. Awesome, though. I, 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 I will tell you this. I, I, I'm inclined. Yeah, see, this one, that's why I love hanging out with my Presbyterian because <laughs> you, guys, you, guys, you guys drink beer and you smoke cigars. And you say pith. So the um, that's a low. The, <laughs> well, I have, I have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm welcome to all. But the, uh, but I will, I'll tell you this: the if it were not for my genuine belief, my pastor told me when I was in my mid twenties, he said I was, I was leaving Texas to come to Denver to attend seminary, and I, I worked for a ministry called the Urban Alternative. He will not remember doing this because this is sixteen. But he caught me in the hallway because he found out I was leaving Dallas to come. And it was a thing for him because he's on the board of Dallas area. What are you doing? It's sin. Now. <laughs> and, um, he said that tongue in cheek, but he did tell me, he says, be sure of your calling because there will be some days when it's all you. Hmm. When you when when the circumstances are so bad that you will have to be like, you'll find yourself crying out to God like Jeremiah, feeling duped. And on those days, you have to be sure of your calling because it, on those days, it may be all you. I'm there now. Mm. And I have never been there before. I've never had to apply that advice from him in the hallway. Mm -hmm. When I say I'm done, I'm, I'm in a genuine struggle right now because while my orthodoxy is squarely evangelical, I, I am each day growing more discontent with how evangelical and their cousins, uh, fundamental, who, or how they are applying our shared orthodoxy. Mm. I'm not even referring to the fact that, that some won't speak up on behalf of justice. Frankly, that has officially been demoted to an annoyance. It's no, it's not heartbreaking. The thing that troubles me is someone who sat quietly for years will then issue a statement that opposes those who are advocates of justice. The Bryce, in your part of the world, there's a pastor who passes a rather large church who drafted a statement that was signed by large fundamentalist names hmm. that were anti, that were anti-social justice. And it, it characterizes those who speak in this manner as Marxists and socialists and all kinds of other. Yeah. And my my struggle with that is 
you took the time to draft a statement and get your friends to sign it. But when Ahmaud Arbery got shot, you didn't say a word. Hmm. When, when George Floyd was choked to death on video, you didn't say a word. When a woman who's resting in her home died, you don't say a word. When Ferguson is on, is on fire and when a 12, Tamir Rice was 12 years old and he was shot less than four seconds after the police approached him because he was holding a toy gun, not a word. Okay. My issue is not that you are quiet. It's that you're not quiet. Hmm. You sit quietly until it's time for you to say something against us. And then you speak up loudly. And I look at how much could change if men of that repute, of that, of that influence were to, to advocate for the justice of those who are in need, speak up on behalf of the marginal. That does, that does wear me out. I'm, t- I have, I'm tired. The video that you referred to earlier, I had to, I had to shoot it three times because I had trouble getting through it the first two. I'm that type of crestfallen. Hmm. And I just don't, I don't know human, under human terms, earthly speaking, I don't know what I will. Having said that, I take joy in the fact that I have a king who is king there and here. And he gave us a gospel that has no competing message. And I'm leaning into that as my people. So I am tired with hope. Mm. Brandon, thanks so much for uh, taking this time. I, I, I can't even express um, just how appreciative I am of your, um, both your perspective, but also your grace to us. In this conversation, I, I'm learning um, a ton, and yet I, I still have an incredible amount to learn. And I, I don't, I don't know exactly where we go from here, but I'm really um, just grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Everything Just Changed, and thanks again, Brandon. Please join us next week. We'll be talking with author and counselor Chris Bruno as we seek to help you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. Please join us for that.